Well, good, good morning. It's good to have you here this morning, and it's good to have the kids with us here this morning as we have already mentioned, and as we've mentioned, this is designated a special family Sunday, so we're together as one big family, and uh, we celebrate um, and thankful for both young and old alike. So if you're here this morning and you're young, we want to let you know we're thankful for you and we love you, and if you're here this morning and you are old, which I think there's only two of you here in that category, we want to let you know we're thankful for you as well, and we love you, and we're here to celebrate together as a family, and that's, I think, something that we can be thankful to the Lord, I think, most of all, and we're going to be talking about that in a minute, but we're looking forward to our fall ministries that are coming up, and we've had a tremendous uh, summer of ministry as we look back and we think about our vacation Bible school and we had students from our church travel all the way to South America and we're part of a, a mission trip to Guyana and uh, we've had our higher goals basketball camp and our kids and adults ministries and so much more. And uh, as we look forward to the fall, of course a big part of that is the kids and the teens and Awana is going to be starting up and a new fall schedule for frontline student ministries here. And uh, we'll continue with our Sunday morning kids ministry and we think of our hearts for God, Bible study, gearing up, and all these things are, are coming together and we're excited about that and it's wonderful to be a part of that. But one of the things we'd like for you to consider is how you can be a part of that and determine what part you'll play and how you can grow, um, how, you can, how you can serve and uh, Pray for opportunities and uh, participating together. So, last week uh, we were in the book of Ruth. Uh, Pastor Brian is on his way to New York to drop two of his daughters off to college. And so, uh, next week we're gearing up for a new sermon series. And as I was considering what to talk about in a transition Sunday like this, uh, I was drawn to a psalm in the Old Testament for this family Sunday. And uh, we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 90. You can turn there together with me. Psalm chapter 90. And uh, for the kids, there's a special handout for you this morning that you can follow along. And of course, for the adults, there's the notes in your bulletin. But we're going to be reading the end of the psalm. And then we'll work our way through the entire chapter to get the full impact and the full meaning behind this entire psalm. And since... This is a family uh, Sunday. Uh, we would like to have Clay Weaver come up, and he's going to read our scripture for us this morning. Clay's come through our kids' ministry, and uh, right now he'll be heading up to student ministries this fall. And he's not afraid to get up in front of people. I'll let you know that. And uh, so he's going to read for us this morning. You can follow along, starting in verse 12. So, good morning. I'm happy to read this passage with you, and it's Psalm chapter 90, 12 through 17. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for many days as you have afflicted us. And for as many years as we have seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. 
Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So thank you for having me, and I'm glad to read this verse. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Clay, for reading for us this morning. Take that. So um, as Clay was reading that, uh, he started off with those words, teach us to number our days. And I was wondering if he thought this was going to be a lesson about arithmetic. Teach us to number our days, especially with school around the corner. But uh, this is actually not a math problem. <laughs> this is a spiritual problem. And uh, through the ages, there has been this question. It's a great question to ask. But there's been this question, how am I to understand myself? How am I to understand who I am? And as I try to understand myself, should I start with God or should I start with me? And I'm going to offer this suggestion to us this morning and uh, at the very start, the only way that we can understand ourselves is to start with God. And Psalm 90 is a declaration of the character of God. And because of that, it's a gateway to understand you. It's a gateway to understand me as we go through life. And we want to consider this entire psalm this morning. There's a lot to consider. And to give you a little background on this passage, this is a uh, unique psalm as we look at it. The inscription at the beginning says that this is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. It's the only psalm that is attributed to Moses. It was written 450 years before David, which most of the psalms are attributed to David. So it's possible that David would have read this psalm and maybe even sung this psalm. As we look at it together, it is the oldest of all the psalms. And so this psalm, the psalms are organized not in chronological order, but they're actually organized in five different books. And this is the first psalm in book four. And it is in the form of a prayer, as we can see. And this is a prayer for grace... This is a prayer for mercy. And the content all this, of this psalm displays some of the major attributes of God. And uh, it's true that what you think about God shapes your entire life. If you have a low view of God, you will have a very high view of yourself. In fact, we can set ourselves up as our own God in life, but that perspective becomes very difficult when we're struck with some of the realities that we end up facing in life. I recently heard this quotation from the well-known atheist Christopher Hitchin, who has now passed away. But uh, in one of his books, he tells about when he first was struck by the fact that he would not be around forever. It wasn't at the death of his father, as is the case for many, but it's when his own son was born, he wrote this. 
When I watched my son being born, I knew at once that my own funeral director had very suddenly but quite unmistakably stepped onto the stage. I was surprised by how calmly I took this, but also how reluctant I was to mention it. Why is an atheist reluctant to admit his meeting with the undertaker? Could it be that the the next logical discussion would then be a discussion about God? Maybe. But then why is it that we who are here today and say that we believe in God, why is it so hard for us to admit and sometimes understand that our time is limited on this earth and that we will not be around forever? Psalm 90 helps us to admit what's hard for us to admit. Psalm 90 helps us, and we see the truths contained in this psalm explain a great deal about human behavior. Because, for instance, it's, for, uh, it's why an individual or a couple will maybe go for months and not give a thought about God, and then suddenly there will be a realization that comes over them that Something is missing in my life. And so they'll, they'll come into church and they'll soak it all in. And then a few months later, they find themselves right back where they started, not giving a thought about God. And they'll wonder, how is it that we got back here? And the answer is the message of this psalm. I live in a flight path of the airport and the plane's go overhead all the time, and something happens when you listen to planes go overhead all the time, and that's that suddenly it becomes just noise. And eventually what happens is it becomes background noise that you can easily ignore. And the warning of this psalm is that we are like most people. We can hear this message, but it can become background noise in our lives. And suddenly, we're not listening to it anymore. And so God is the one that needs to continually bring this message to our attention again and again. And what is that message? It starts up in verse 1, where it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. This introduces to us the subject of the psalm, and the subject is the Lord. The first word of this psalm is the word Lord, and he is a dwelling place. He's a dwelling place for his people, is what it says. And think about that for a moment, because the historical background of this psalm is the time of Moses when the people of Israel had just come out of slavery, and they were in a land that was not their home. And then because of disobedience, they were wandering around in the desert again in a land that was not their home. And yet the Lord was there with them, and it seemed like wherever they pitched their tents, that's where they ended up. And the Lord was with them, a a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day. He was with them in the presence as a visual representation that he was their dwelling place. He was their oasis. He was their place of refreshment. And this is no doubt a picture of our lives because deep 
within the human heart is a deep sense of homelessness. Elizabeth Elliot says that there is a deep, unspoken, inexpressible longing for something. And most of the world doesn't know what that is. Most of the world thinks if they had more money and more time and more leisure and could go to more places and buy more things, they could have what the world calls happiness. But Moses knows that what we know, and that's that God is our dwelling place. He is our home. Even if we're homeless, he is our home. And he's talking about something here that's not just an event, it's not just a segment of time, but Moses says that you have been our dwelling place in all generations. One of the unique abilities that God has given us is the ability to measure time. Of all of God's creation, no other creature measures time like, like we do. Back in ancient days, they had the sundials that they measured time, and today we've traded in the sundial, and we have wristwatches, we have iPhones that tell us the time, and it lists it out and measures it to the second and millisecond. I remember a time when I was growing up, our clocks always seemed to run fast in our house, and so we would call this lady up on the phone. We called her the time and temperature lady. Does anyone remember the time and temperature lady? This is robotic voice, and we'd call her up, and she'd say, Good morning. So cheerful. Good morning. She said, It's 8.05, and the temperature is minus 4 degrees. I grew up in Wisconsin, and it was like cold all the time. So we'd recalibrate our clocks, and that's how we, we measured time. And there's, there's hardly a moment for us today that we're not measuring time. We're always conscious about what time it is. If we go for a walk in a, any cemetery, you see how we measure time. Almost on every tombstone is a date of birth and a date of death. That's how we measure time. But one of the things that time creates is generations. Time creates generations of people. I mean, what is it that separates a parent from their child? But time. What is it that separates the old from the young? But time. And sometimes we, we make generational differences, this a major issue, but at the essential level, the main thing that separates us is simply time. And uh, our minds can become cluttered and distracted by definitions of different generations and the questions as to what captivates this generation versus that generation. And uh, it causes us at times to miss the most important thing, and that is that it is not about us. It's about God. And the fact that he has been our dwelling place for all generations. It's become a rare thing for a church to have multiple generations and I think, uh, you know, people will often designate a church and say, well, that's a young church, or that's a, an old church, that's a middle-aged church. And one of the things I'm thankful for, and especially as we think about this on Family Sunday, is that uh, at our church, it's great. We don't just have gray hairs. We don't just have millennials. We don't just have middle age. But I'm thankful that as my kids have grown up here and been taught and nurtured by people, they've been 
taught by people in their 20s and 30s and 50s and 70s and 80s. And I hope someday we can add 90s to that. Why is that important? Uh, we have grandparents and grandkids and great-grandparents and great-grandkids, and, and that's great because the old are examples to the young, and the young need the old, and we have this advantage as, as a, being a big family that we can be thankful for. Uh, the next generation needs to understand how God was a dwelling place for the generation that came before it, and the old generation needs to see how God is being a dwelling place for the next generation. And Moses says, God is our dwelling place for all generations. I think about this this morning in your notes. The first fill-in this morning says, When I blank think about God. And the word that I have for you to fill in there is the word truly. When I truly think about God. When I truly think about God, because there's a natural progression that happens when a person brings the truth of the one true God into their minds and into their thinking. And when you truly think about God, this is what you're going to think about. And this is the message of this passage in Psalm chapter 90. As Moses thinks about God, we see what his mind is drawn to in verse 2. He says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There never was a time when God was not God. He didn't become God. He didn't grow into the role of God. He didn't own a, a few planets and then eventually buy into the whole universe. It says from everlasting to everlasting before all of creation, it says, you are God. You always have been and you always will be. This is what comes to mind when we think of God. And a lot of people think about God today and a lot of people talk about God today. But what comes to mind and what is spoken of is not what Moses talks about in this prayer. And we're going to get into this because, for instance, if, if we could just talk for a moment about Oprah Winfrey. And I know some of you are saying, you know what, I don't want to talk about Oprah Winfrey this morning. But she's one that actually talks about God quite a bit. And she's talked about God a lot through the years. And I don't mean to put her down as, as a person, but I've, I've got to tell you that when she talks about God, she doesn't mention the things that Moses talks about here. And the reason she doesn't mention the things that Moses talks about here is because she's not talking about the same God that Moses is talking about. When you think about God, you're going to talk about what is spoken of in Psalm 90. And on your outline, we've, we've put four responses that a person has when they truly think about God. When I truly think about God, I first of all think about my own mortality. I think about my own mortality. The pattern of this psalm is that it starts with naming an attribute of God, and then it gives the opposite of that attribute that characterizes us as, as humans. In verse 2, it describes God as immortal, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And then in verse 3, we are described as the opposite of immortal. Moses, talking to God, says, 
you return man to dust and say, return, O children of God. God is immortal. We are dust. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because it's a reference to the book of Genesis. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There will be a time when God says to each one of us, return to dust. Return to dust. Your physical body will soon be dust. But we ignore the obvious. John Calvin, in his commentary on this psalm, said, Although we know this, we are stupidly tied to our transient existence, imagining that we will live forever. You know, every 12 seconds, someone in the United States dies. 150,000 people die every day in the world. That is a Ford field full of humanity more than twice. And when you're younger and you even have a sense that, a stronger sense that you'll never die or you think it's this event that's going to eventually happen that you don't have to be concerned about, but thinking about God reveals to us himself and his word and it's like good medicine that gives us this perspective about the fact that God is eternal and I am not. That's why it says in the book of Ecclesiastes it says that it's better to go to a funeral than a party. Ecclesiastes 7 says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind and the living will, make, will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. You know, this is why um, churches used to have cemeteries right next to the church building. We sort of kind of cringe at that today and think, well, that would probably scare the children and might make people uncomfortable. But think about that. Every time you come to worship God, you're reminded that life is temporal. Moses thought about his own mortality, his own end. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It's not always the perspective we want to think about because our deepest longing in our heart is that we would live forever. Woody Allen is a filmmaker. He's known for his sarcasm. And he said, I don't want to achieve immortality in my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. Thinking that at least he's honest. That's how we all are, right? It doesn't matter how much you want it, but it's not going to happen. And when I truly think about God, I think about my own mortality. And number two, I think about my brevity. I think about my shortness of life. Verse four, for a thousand years in your sight are as... But yesterday, when it's passed, or as a watch in the night, you sweep them away as with the flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. Psalm 90, verse 4 through 6. Not only is death inevitable, but life is short. This past week, my family was going for a walk, and my daughters made this, this compliment that, or this comment that it seems that. Their years as a teenager are moving much faster than their years when they were a young child. 
And uh, that's how it seems, doesn't it? Every year seems to go by a little faster and a little faster. And it's like we're gaining momentum and gaining speed. And I remember back to my first grade experience. Sometimes I still think I'm caught back in that year. And I was like, the year that never would end. And yet I look back at the last decade of my life and it's as if someone snapped their fingers and poof, it was gone. Like, where did that, where did that go? That's what life is like. Verse 4 says, with God, with God, time is really nothing. God is timeless. A thousand years to God is as one day yesterday or even a watch in the night. Only four hours long. One thousand years is as four hours like a watch in the night. Verse 5, he takes the years and he sweeps them away like a flood. It's like those tidal pools on the ocean. If you've ever been there and you, the tide goes out and you go to those, those pools that are left on, this, on the ground and you see the vegetation and all the creatures and everything that's there. And then the tide comes in and sweeps in and you go back at the next low tide and suddenly it's all washed away. It's swept away. Where did it, where did it go? It, it vanished. What happened to it? Life is like that. Where did it go? Here one day, gone the next. You know, President Lincoln is, is known as one of, one of the great American presidents. And I learned this recently that there were two quotations that came from his assassination. Uh, the history books tell us that after John Wilkes Booth shot President Lincoln, that he jumped out onto the stage of the theater there and he held up his fist and he shouted out these words, Sick, Semper, Tyrannus. And then those words mean thus always to tyrants. And the history books also tell us the next day when Lincoln had died, his friend and the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, spoke to a small group of people that had gathered around his bedside. And Stanton said these words, Now he belongs to the ages. Greatness one second gone the next. That's what life is like. One commentator says it like this. Every human being is like a drop in the giant stream of time. God is timeless. I am bound by time. And time brings about my end. And so it's at this point as we're looking at this psalm that Moses goes on and this is when things get a little more personal and we begin to see a severe side of God in this. And I, I think, number three, when I think of God, when I truly think of God, number three, I think of my own sinfulness. And this is where some people will, will drop off the grid and often when this psalm is presented, it's kind of sanitized and cleaned up to be more presentable to a, a 21st century audience. And so the next few verses will often go unmentioned because... They're thought of as maybe distasteful. But it would be a mistake to not talk about them. This is what gives the psalm its meaning. Starting in verse 7, it says, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a, a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger 
and your wrath according to the fear of you. As we gain an understanding of God and this world and ourselves, we come to the realization that, that something is, is deeply wrong. And it's, it's not just that I have a problem that can be solved with a self-help book or a TED Talk. It's something that goes deeper than that. It's that I am living in rebellion against a higher authority. And it's the one who created me. It's a very difficult thing to admit, and not a lot of people want to admit this, but it's not that I just need better self-esteem, or it's not that I just need to go find a better version of myself. It's that I need to realize that, that I am at odds with God. That I need to be saved by God. It's that I need to be saved from God. When I truly think about God, I think about my sin, and as such, we're under God's judgment, we're under God's wrath, and we look at these verses and we ask, why do people have to die? People have to die because God is angry with our sinfulness. It's not that there was an unfortunate gene mutation a few thousand years ago. We look at these verses, we realize it goes back to a garden, right? It goes back to a man and a, wo a woman, Adam and Eve. It goes back to the fact that they rebelled against God, and now I have that same rebellion that's anchored deep in my own heart. R.C. Ryle said this, Beware of manufacturing a God of your own. A God who is all mercy, but not just. Such a God is an idol of your own. Why is it so important that we see this aspect to God's character? It's because God must be God with all of his attributes on display. And oftentimes the difficult parts are the necessary parts as we think about this. And practically, practically speaking, a distorted view of God will affect how we share the gospel with others. I was watching a presentation by a man named Jonathan Lehman who was talking about the pressure that we sometimes feel when we're witnessing to someone, another person. And my guess is that we've all felt this at times, and there's this pragmatic impulse that kind of weighs down on us and it overtakes us. And he says this, we want to present the gospel as relevant to our culture, to those who reject it, so we work to soften the edges a little bit present the easier parts out front instead of the hard parts, talk about Jesus' offering the abundant life, and maybe we can hold off that talk of hell and judgment and sin even till later. He said there's certainly a place to know your audience, as Paul demonstrates, but neither Paul nor Jesus nor any of the apostles hid the offense of the gospel. When you invite people with a watered-down gospel, at best, they will have a weak grasp on the gospel. Worse yet, and fairly commonly, I'm afraid, they will come for the incentive, but never really understand the whole gospel, and so never really be saved. Satan is more than happy for people to be good and moral, and even call themselves Christians, and yet never really know the saving, life-changing power of the gospel. And as a result, they won't work to share that gospel with others. 
When a person truly thinks about God, they think about their sinfulness in light of a holy and a just God. In verse 8, it says, God has set our iniquities before himself, our secret sins in the light of his presence. What are, what are the secret sins that it talks about there? Our secret sins are the sins that, that we're most ashamed of. It's like usually the worst sins that we, we struggle with and they're the sins that we want no one else to know about. And when you do a, a self-inventory, you'll find, as, as I will as well, that there are these secret sins in our lives. And we, we hold them close. We don't want them to be revealed to others. But our, our secret sins are no secret to God. When we sin in this way, we're, we're actually sinning in the face of God. In his presence. And those sins can include our thoughts. Those sins can be spoken, uh, words spoken when, when no one else is around. And God is saying this, this isn't just a trivial matter. In Jeremiah 23, 24, it says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Hebrews 4.13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So why do we hide our secret sins? And it brings up this rather revealing question about myself, and that's why would I be comfortable hiding my sins from others, but openly sinning in front of God? I think Moses has the answer for us in verse 11. He says, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Our sin increases with the lack of fear of God. That's the reality. Uh, is, is my sin any better if no one discovers it? Secret sin becomes more wicked because the wicked is, is also filled with hypocrisy. Because I'm pretending to be someone that I'm, I'm not, but the Christian understands the evils of sin and the great displeasure that God takes in it. I, ra I ran across this quotation a few weeks ago. It says, when a person becomes a Christian, the sin that was once a delightful meal tastes like a barrel of rot. And the life of sin that was once a fragrant bed smells and feels like a mire wallow. The Christian is not immune to sin, but can no longer find long-term delight in it. And so according to this psalm, when a person thinks about God, they think about their sinfulness. And at the end of this psalm, in, in the remaining verses, Moses shifts gears and he makes this plea to God for grace. He makes this plea to God for mercy. And if we're to stop right here, we might think, this psalm is actually like a complete despair, right? But fortunately, the psalm doesn't end there. It's a good thing the psalm doesn't end there because so far we're probably thinking, you know what, this doesn't sound very encouraging, all right? This guy is up here and he's telling me I'm going to die and it's probably sooner than I think and life is miserable and God is angry and um, life is going to end with a sigh and groan of pain and there's this huge burden of sin and probably thinking, you know, when's the ice cream going to get here? 
just bring in the ice cream right now? <laughs> you know what? This is the great thing. Moses, Moses doesn't despair. Because actually this psalm is a psalm of great hope. Failure is never final when there's the grace of God. Failure is never final when there's the grace of God that's present. And so Moses goes on and he's, he talks about the last part here, number four, about my, <clears throat> when I truly think about God, I think about my need. And this is where Moses pleads with God and he offers up these requests because Moses also knows the goodness of God. Moses also knows this great love of God and he offers up this prayer request, our need to be taught, verse 12. It says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is the one phrase that emerges as the centerpiece of this whole psalm, to teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It's understanding the value of each and every day that's given to us because you see your days and you see yourself in light of who God is and it requires that God be your teacher. Teach us. Teach us, O oh God, to number our days. And we can't add more days to what God's already given to us, but we can add wisdom to our days. Also, our need to be satisfied, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Moses was praying for this new day for him and for his people. Our need to be glad, verse 15. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Is it true that failure isn't final as long as there's the grace of God this morning? And as we think about this, as we gather these thoughts together, it's true, isn't it? Because there's a person who steps in and solves all the problems that this psalm brings up. And his name is Jesus Christ. Can Jesus solve the problem that death is inevitable? 1 Thessalonians 5.10 He died that we might live. Can Jesus solve the problem that life is short? He came that we might have life. John 3.16 Can Jesus solve the problem that my sin makes God angry? And yes, he became the punishment for my sins. 1 Peter 2.24 the New Testament takes all these truths that have been piling up in the Old Testament and it shows its fulfillment in the person of Christ. As we close this morning, I just want to look, have you look at the verse on the screen. It's the New Testament book of Colossians. Chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. Doesn't that sound like what we've been reading here? Where's the focus to be on here or eternity? Is the focus to be on this ever-changing world or is the focus on a never-changing God? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Set your minds on things above. Jesus Christ, the one who died for me on the cross, the cross where God poured out his anger for our sins, the cross where God showed us just how much he loves us. The psalm mentions... How God's anger and love are intermingled together and we see at the cross how God's anger and love are intermingled together to offer us life and to offer us hope. Colossians 3, 3 and 4. 
For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will, will appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 3 and 4. So this morning, as we think about this, as we bring this to a close, two key conclusions. Our death has been handled by the death of another. Jesus Christ, crucified, put on the cross. Our death has been handled by him. He took our place. And so, in his resurrection, our life is found in the life of another. Him as the first fruits of the resurrection, one day our body can be bodily resurrected and we can be given eternal life because of what Jesus Christ has done. And some of you are here today and maybe you're thinking for the first time, this is when it makes sense who Jesus Christ is. And I would urge you, don't put it off, but respond to, to that urging in your heart as God, God's word convicts you of who you are in light of who God is. To know that you can repent of your sin, turn from your sin, turn to Jesus, believe and surrender, nothing more. You know, it was, it was a week ago after the, the service that I went to the assisted living center and I walked in with my wife and one of my sons and we entered the building there and there was people there in the, the opening living room area watching TV and talking and, and passing time that were there and I went down the hallway and I entered this room and there was a woman there who was struggling for every breath and her eyes were closed she was in the last few hours of her life she hadn't taken fluid for days and I sat down beside her and as we mentioned some of you will re remember Betty Leach and I said a prayer for Betty, and I, I told her how much she was loved, and I don't know if she heard what I was saying or not, but Betty, in her late 90s, she's been a member of this, of this church for years, and now she's with the Lord. We'll celebrate her life on, on Saturday. And I sat there beside that bedside, and it made me think of this church and, and the ones who have who've gone before and built and established this church before many of us were even here, and how thankful I was for Betty and for others, you know. And it's not long before the young will grow old and the old will be young, be gone, and there'll be a young generation that comes up. There's this cycle that continues and continues because we always stand on the shoulders of those who have come before us. We're indebted to them for their work and young and old alike. We benefit from the fact that God is our dwelling place. And he's been that for all generations. And it made me wonder, how do we show our gratitude to God as to how he's been faithful to us through all the generations? Young and old alike, we see his faithfulness to us. And you know what? Life is short. Sometimes it's 90 years short. But God is good through all of time. And we can repeat those words of Moses, I believe. Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. And that's a great perspective to take with you this morning. Will you close with me in prayer?
Father, we come before you this morning and we pray that that Moses' prayer would indeed be our prayer, that you would teach us to to number our days, uh, that we might gain a heart of, of wisdom. Lord, we pray that your work would be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children and that you let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us and establish, yes, Lord, the work of our hands. We thank you for the hope that is in Jesus Christ, that he is the fulfillment of all the truths throughout the entire Old Testament. And that even though we know that this life grows tiresome and it's short and death is sure, we thank you that through Jesus there's hope of eternal life. Because we know that failure is never final when there's the grace of God. This morning we come before you in recognition of that grace that was showered on us through that sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask if there's those here who have really never understood fully the work of Jesus Christ, Lord, that they would run to you during this time, that they would fully surrender their lives to you. And Lord, we know that for us who followed you for some time it's easy for us to forget it's easy for these truths to become background noise for us and Lord we need to approach you with humility and ask that you would teach us Lord to realize the value in each and every day so that as a result we might gain wisdom that you're willing to give to us So we thank you for this time. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. It's available to us. Use these words, Lord, for your glory. We pray in Christ's name.